calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do, talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, everybody. So excited to be here. Yeah, we're back. There it is. They were, they were asleep. Or they were shy. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. Maybe they just got back from vacation, too. Maybe they're just a little bit slow to, to put the hands together. But um, me, I know I'm a little slow in thought and action today, but that's <laughs> a, it's a good thing. I woke up this morning and I needed more sleep. Yes. But that's been true all week of giving myself as much sleep and just, you know, not being in our own beds and, you know, the, the differences and the way the light falls across your face. And yes. And everything. All that stuff affects your sleep cycles. Sometimes you need a vacation from your vacation, you that's know? True. So, so recovery from my vacation. No question about that. So now today we're on... I'm taking I'm taking today off of a lot of stuff, although I'm going to get some writing done. We're on the staycation portion of our vacation, where where we're at home enjoying things. I I was missing my my crows in the old house where we used to live, and you know, Steve, you you always have this this voice you've implanted in my head, which is you know, people joke about men and women like women just want to commiserate, men want to fix, right? So in my head, I was telling you, oh, I miss our crows. And you were like, well, what do we have to do to have more crows in my in my head? And I was like, oh, my God, Steve, in my head, you're right. I can just figure out 
how to get crows to come to our new house. And sure enough, I found articles. <laughs> There's a whole, like, it's not that hard. I, I you, know, you know, if I were to say, is there any evolutionary reason why there might be a difference between the way men and women look at this? In other words, if I were to say, maybe there is a difference. And I think that there kind of is, I think part of that would be because women traditionally have to deal with children who are pre-vocal, pre-verbal. They hurt. They fear, but there's nothing, there are no words, there's no strategy or tactics that's really going to help it. What, what's necessary is, is the nurturance, is mommy right. is here, because that represents maybe I'll be safe because mommy is here. And I think that, that guys move out into this world of problem solving, you know, usually dealing with other adults, more likely. And so either clearly there's a fantastic amount of flexibility in the system, but it would make sense that the, that the two worlds might overlap, but specialize. It's possible. Well, and neither of us, as you know, listeners, but I just have to say it, neither of us is saying that all women are nurturers and all men are problem solvers. Okay. okay. Don't, don't hear that. That's not what we're saying, but this is definitely a dynamic that happens between me and Steve. It's something comedians talk about all the time. And I was just pretty excited. It's something because, that gets complained about. I mean, I, yeah. I, I've read tons of complaints from women about, you know, he's always trying to fix me and complaints from men about she's rejecting solutions and wallowing in the pain. You know, it's both sides. There's a lack of understanding. Yes. That, that yes. Men want women to think like men, except when they do, they don't like it. Women want men to think like women, except when they do, they don't like it. It's fascinating. Hey, I just had an idea. Let's make it official that we're talking about what's going on. All right, that's what's going on. And I want to start with, I mean, most of it is fun stuff because we just got back from a few days in Long Beach and we'll talk about the odyssey that was that trip. But I do want to give a shout out to my father, John Dew, who is currently in the hospital. It doesn't look too serious. But when you're 88... It's all serious. It's always serious. So he is definitely on my mind. And and my sisters and I, I have two younger sisters, Janita and Lydia, we are a dream team when it comes to sharing responsibilities with our parents. We've heard about families where people are squabbling and hating each other. And one person feels like everyone's leaning on them. And we are absolutely that team that is there. You guys are great. You're, yeah. You're absolutely great. You're warriors for your family. I yes, we are. So there's that. And that just happened yesterday. But but we were in, in Long Beach, the miracle vacation that was delayed by the storm. By hurricane and ha- Oh, yeah. And, you know. Yay, we finally got out of the house. Sickness. You know, doggy sickness. Yes. I mean, we, we months out. We wanted to have a special event that would really help the family come together in the same house for a vacation. We did it uh, in Seal Beach during COVID. It was like the first time we all got out after COVID and it was incredible. So we, we were looking, I mean, actually originally at Maui, ironically enough, months That's ago, right. and so we were we looking at Maui. Four, you know, fire would have been in there, fire, hurricane, earthquake, sickness. It really is sort of amazing just how much stuff went wrong. And we I know. roll with it. 
But yes, and what I'm really proud of is that we totally rolled with it. Like we, when we heard the storm was coming, got in touch. And I, you know, I know some people don't like Airbnbs, but for a longer stay in particular, uh, I just find hotels to be very confining. So we wanted a place with four bedrooms where the whole family could be together. And the Airbnb owner was really, really flexible, moved us a week, added an extra day because we were so flexible. So that was beautiful. And that was a positive. And at first, my stepdaughter, Nikki, couldn't come because her dog was sick. And we had gone through so much trouble to make sure it was a pet-friendly Airbnb. And so Not just first... pet-friendly, but was within her driving distance. Yes. And, you know, we just, we're just trying beach. to make sure that everybody can be there. And it and... was just nightmarish in one in one sense but we kept rolling with it I'm and proud. we were trying so hard to line up a friend for our our 19 year old son because you know at teenagers like to hang out with their friends they don't like to hang out with their parents and their family and that kept falling through nobody could make it and he was such a trooper i mean he was he didn't complain hardly about a single thing on the trip and we all got to go jet skiing together that was our north star was we have a picture in our heads of the family going jet skiing and it actually happened and it was amazing i was i had my arms wrapped around jason's waist screaming at the top of my lungs the whole time i was on the jet ski with him because he is a madman uh, even the jet ski order was like is he trying to throw her off on purpose <laughs> but it it was just a peak when i say a peak memory a peak experience i, I how about you honey well, you know, there's a part of me that was always trying to figure out how to fix things, you know, and then the other part <laughs> yes. that was saying that the real, that the fixing of the thing is really being engaged with, you know, that, that I have to, you know, to, to be engaged with that moment, not observing the moment. Yes. So it was moving back and forth, but my, my sense of it was that it was all totally worth it and, and I was totally happy. We did manage, you know, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't the picture in my head, but it was everything the picture in my head was trying to arrange. Yes. I got, had Nikki there, and I had Nala, her puppy, there, and you and I they were They finally did make it, there. just and for a night. Joyce was there, and her yes. daughter was there, and her daughter's family dinner. husband were there. So we did family dinner. We did hot tubbing. We did jet skis. You know, So it was all, it was all really good. And just a lot of good kickback time, sleeping late and watching movies and, and you know, eating garbage. You know? <laughs> right. Eating the way we shouldn't. I'm trying. Oh, my God. I'm afraid to get on a scale. I, don't I've get worked, on the scale for a week. I've worked so hard to lose the weight I gained in no, the writer's no, no, room. Don't, don't get on the scale for a week. Just, you know, so now we're we're starting to heal. Now it. we're starting to oh, move good. back. But, you know, what are the funny writing done while we were there? Yes. Well, not, I mean, I wrote an essay. I have an essay about the music of the reformatory that will be published a little bit later this year. My novel, the reformatory comes out October 31st, plug, plug. But actually I was going to segue into writing because something pretty extraordinary happened. Um, that leads into our topic for the day because mm -hmm. it's September 1st. A lot of you are thinking of September 1st as back to school, but since we have a 19 year old who's still on his gap time, we think of September 1st as the start of <laughs> spooky season, baby. And what's so funny is that our the writer's room we were in right before the writer's strike, Brian Fuller's Crystal Lake room, was also at an Airbnb that was they rented it for several weeks. 
So that was our first experience of what a writer's room workspace looks like. And when we walked into the Airbnb, that dining room table, we, for the one we rented, had this beautiful dining room table that could probably fit, what, 10 people? I mean, it was huge. And to me, it was yelling out, time to break story, time to break story, writer's room, writer's room. And since Steve is working on a spec script, you can talk about it as much as you want or don't want, but he's working on a spec script. We... We got some cardboard display paper, like so, like a, a school project from CVS and some post-its. And we created a board, just like in a writer's room, to, to look at the different acts of, of what Steve is working on. And I'll hand it over to you. But just to, I just want to let the listeners know that today's topic is all about how, secrets to writing great horror. So listen, my fourth novel written back, you know, 35 years ago or more was the Kundalini equation, which is a story about a a man who accidentally discovers a form of meditation that triggers the full spectrum of human mental and physical capacities. And it turns into a nightmare because no one knows how to control it anymore. So it's, you know, it had a lot of the values that I, a, a lot of my ambitions and interests went into that. And it was for decades, my favorite of my books. It's a great book. I exceeded myself. You know, it was from time to time you do better than than your baseline. And then sometimes you do worse than your baseline. I've had those worse experiences. But that was one of the ones where I, I really put it together. Years later, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking to myself, well, what would I like to write next? And I'm thinking that that book was not the book I would have written today for a month, for variety of reasons. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better writer today. I know a lot more about the subject today and the world has changed. So I wouldn't have to be as afraid of not speaking my truth in the sense that the, the, the hero of the book wouldn't have been white if I wrote it today. I did it right. then because it was an attempt to create a bestseller. It was an attempt to move my career forward at a time when there just weren't that many black people reading science fiction. So I wasn't, and, 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 and I, I felt that. that there'd be a problem. I, I want to also, just to clarify contextually, it's not just an attempt to buy a bestseller, but it's also because it literally might have harmed or most certainly would have harmed the book to have a Black person on the cover in that, that era. That was certainly what I was told after they after Street Lethal, which was my third novel, had a Black lead and they put a white guy on the cover. What was I supposed to think? You know, was I supposed to to believe that that the world would accept me, it would accept this. I think that would have been foolish of me. Right. I mean, I don't agree with them putting the white character on the cover. No, I mean, that was, but the fact that they would do that tells me where their head is. Exactly. As far as I'm concerned, and and I hate to say this because in some cases, especially my, my, my editor on that was very nice, woman. And I think that she would have been perfectly happy to put a black man on the cover. But if I take a look at the company, which you have is them saying to me, we're not comfortable with this. They were not comfortable with it, but they were passing the responsibility on to other people. They would not want to take a look at their own responsibility, their own choices, their own preferences, their own prejudices, what they were or were not comfortable with. I think that it is safest for me to assume that 
it, it would be nicest perhaps for me to assume that, oh, no, no, they were all fine. It's, they're just worried about that audience out there. But the <laughs> audience will also say, you know, no, we were fine with it. Everybody says they're fine with it, and yet somehow it doesn't happen. So, so it's a tricky area. It's a tricky area. Well, I just make, I just, you know, it was, it was that period of time where I came up with one of my core theories that this is simply present in human nature, and it's largely unconscious. That sort of an unconscious aversion pattern, and that very few people are conscious enough and honest enough to, you know, to conscious enough to realize it and honest enough to say it out loud. Everybody's passing the buck to somebody else. Oh no, we're not the problem. It's them. So it forced me to come up with some kind of universal principles of the way human beings think. Because I also didn't want to say that this is the way white people think. It was the I had it had to be. This is what people do. And I, I realized that I was running my career a little bit like trying to pogo stick through a minefield, that there were all these bombs that no one would admit were there. And they, didn't, they couldn't tell me where they were because they couldn't admit that they were there. And I had to try to traverse this territory and make enough money to support my family. You know, so it's like, what do I do? How do I do it? And there aren't even any allies to help me through this process. Yeah, this is long before Jordan Peele. This is long oh before there God, was yeah. any such thing as Afrofuturism. I don't even think Jordan Peele was in high school. At this right. Time. So you were a pioneer. I like to say this as often as possible because y'all don't even know who we have here on this other <laughs> microphone. Is that pioneer Stephen Barnes? Let's let's just shout that out. But yeah, so here he is trying to write a book, making a conscious decision that the protagonist would be white for the sake of sales. And now you are grown ass, you know. The market has changed. In yes. I think that, that the white audience is more used to seeing black characters. So it's not going to be as much of a shock. There are far more black people that are reading science fiction now. So that's an advantage as well. In film, people are changing the race of the character to be black to try yes. to attract you viewers. Know, they, they do that without changing without understanding what else they have to change in terms of worldview and values and behaviors and so forth. But they're, they're trying. Let, let me steer us back to topic if I can. Yeah, this, is, this is horror. I see the potential to do something that's never been done before. And I see the potential for doing something that is unique to me. You know, that, that it, is a, it, it will be a Stephen Barnes script. And it will be, if, if it works well as a script, then I'm going to turn it into a novel. In other words, I'm going to rewrite one of my earlier novels and turn it into what it should have been and hopefully, you know, improve it thereby. But it's also an opportunity to, by collaborating with you on the script part of this, I'm getting to to see how do you, how do you do this? Because you've, you have a talent for taking horror and grounding it in in practical historical considerations and because of that it, it not only resonates with people more deeply i think but it, it also aligns itself with your values and i think it produces a superior experience so well can i just say something ah well i god knows i've learned so much from you about <laughs> science fiction so a lot of our collaborations are science fiction horror and i i was trying to figure out what is the the best place to say this how mm. is what is the best way to say this because it's going to sound hella immodest <laughs> what no, i'm just, about to say. say it i mean you know the, the, as long there as you are know. people yeah, go ahead. yeah there are people who consider me to be i read this okay i'm not making this up 
one of the greatest living horror writers. Yeah. Not black. I think so. I think so. I mean, look, you started at the age of four, <laughs> you know, and you were supported by your family and by your community. You are to, to say that if you spend all of your time and energy for decades doing a thing, you should not get really good at that thing. What are you saying about human effort? You've yeah. put in the time and the energy and the training, you know, the, the master's degree from Leeds in Nigerian literature. It, it's only reasonable that that kind of effort and focus over time would make you one of the best. If well, not, what you're saying is, well, you're either born, you know, the best or you'll never get there. I'm always I'm all about the most important single talent is the capacity to focus over time and to dump your ego and accept mentoring. So, so given that, given that Steve is a pioneer and is bringing strong game and that I'm bringing strong game, we thought a podcast where we talk about what we think creates great horror stories is a, is a great topic for us using this work in progress as a jumping off point. Because one of the things that we were doing and creating the cards, and we'll talk more about, you know, some of the elements that go into breaking story and, and especially in horror, since that's our topic today, was to put little blue cards down where the horror element was amped up. Yes. So we could visually see, like we're looking at the whole story on a board. Those little blue cards are telling us, huh, we've gone an act and a half without any horror moments. Or there's a couple of horror moments here, but then we're getting really thin on horror moments later. So that's and the I first principle is to- it has to be scary. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. That's what I'm trying to say. I would assume that you need to arc it. Um, Yes. In terms of the last act, you know, we watched a famous horror movie whose name we will not say because there is going to be some, there are some connections there in terms of Mm -hmm. image systems. And Mm -hmm. asking ourselves, What's the greatest extent that we're going to go to in terms of what we see? What is the most extreme moment in terms of what is said or done? What is the most extreme moment? Because there's a point at which, no, that's too extreme. That's too much. Mm-hmm. And there's a point at which it's, that's not enough. What have we set up for people to expect in terms of transformation or redemption or, or lack of redemption? You know, all those different arcs, all that stuff in some ways has to be coordinate as if you were writing a symphony, that you have all these different instruments which represent different emotions and different characters and different thematics. And it all has to wind together so that you are just feeling this experience as you hear this story, as you you go through this story. What is the emotional journey 
that they're going to go through. And I think that using the the writer's room technique, using the, the, the vision board of different scenes, using different colored cards or whatever, allows you to step back and feel your way through the story before you've written it. And I'm going to take what we did there. And then I had a friend come over who has cultural understandings. So I'd be sure that I wasn't being offensive because there were some things I wanted to do there, but also understandings of the, the magic or the, you know, technology that, that is being used here to, to make the passage through the gates of, of hell in essence. Um, and now that we've got this threefold cardboard thingy, I'm going to then create a three to four page treatment about, you know, they're basically just running through the story, talking through the story. And my guess is that doing that will give us the ability to look at this and ask, what would the experience of this movie be? And if somebody and, sat and watched this movie, how would they feel about it? You know, and I had a, I had a, a realization because Steve loves watching action movies and I do too, but not as much as he does. And and I love watching horror movies and he does too, but not quite as much, not quite as much as I do, but he likes watching horror movies more than I like watching action movies. And I was sort of trying to ask myself, what is the difference between action and horror for me personally? Because in most action movies, there is a series of events that is absolutely horrific. Lives are in danger. Bullets are flying. People are getting hurt. Check, check, check. This is all stuff that happens in horror. What makes horror different? And I, I had a realization just recently that for me, the difference usually has to do with either the depth of characterization. Do I believe these are real people experiencing this? But beyond that, do I relate to them? Okay. So any description of a movie, let's put it this way. Let's say there's a horror movie about people on a ski trip, a bunch of college friends on a ski trip get trapped in a ski lift. This is actually a real plot for a real movie, and I can't remember the name of the movie. It's very scary. And the reason that movie is very scary to me is that even though I don't ski, I have been on vacation, and I do have friends, and there were interpersonal dynamics that have been set up between them so that they felt real, check, so that everything that happened to them felt very personal. That very same premise, you say a mercenary on a mission is stuck on a ski lift, I automatically do not relate to this dude because I would never be a mercenary on a ski lift. So everything that happens is just kind of interesting entertainment and watching him work his way out of it, but it doesn't feel personal and he's probably not that scared. That's another thing. I think rule one for horror, and then I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Steve, because I can go on a, off on a tangent. Say you had a video camera and you're going through one of those haunted houses like you see at carnivals, like local carnivals, and the camera is just point of view of stuff jumping at you and people just, I mean, maybe that's scary, maybe it's not. It depends on your personal sensibility. If you wanted to make a movie about an employee who was walking through that same path with people jumping out, also not scary. He works there. He He rigged that thing. You have to have a character who is relatable to the audience, who is experiencing Fear. So it's not enough to have a scary setup like the haunted house. What's scary is when you take a customer 
who's never been inside that haunted house. You're in the point of view of the customer experiencing those scares. And then, of course, hopefully something goes badly wrong or they're bringing in their lives before they ever walk through the door. This is an important day. This is a couple just trying to get back together, trying to work out their stuff. And the scary stuff is in it's a conversation between the external scares and the internal journey of your characters. And I'll go back to that, but I, I want to make sure I, I let Steve jump back in too. No, I wasn't looking to jump back in. And I think, like I said, if we're going to talk about horror, I'm in the student position. I mean, I've certainly generated fear in stories before, but nobody has ever accused me of being the best <laughs> by, by any means. Well, so that's I, I'm much more interested in what you have to say about so it. So we're bouncing back between talking about the work we did on this specific work and also general principles for horror. So I've talked about this template that I think can be very useful for horror writers. That is one that I use, but it doesn't seem like a template because every story is so individual, right? But my go-to, I have to write a horror story. I have three weeks to write it. What am I going to do? So boom, what scares you? Let's start with that. What literally from your life scares you. And I think one of the reasons I go to survival horror, I just finished watching another survival horror movie on Hulu. It wasn't very good, but I'll watch even a bad one because the idea of being lost in the woods is very scary to me. And I have been hiking. I have been camping. I have been whitewater rafting. So it's not so outside of my experience that I don't relate to the characters. So what is scary Something that scares me, being lost in the woods. Okay, great. We've seen that movie a million times. How do you make it yours? <laughs> well, you amplify your real-life fear up to 11. Very often that means that you make it not just bears that you're afraid of, but there's like some weird symbols out there in the woods. It becomes supernatural. It becomes about a cult. It becomes about something that's kind of bigger than what we're even likely to encounter in life. That's worse than bears. It's worse than uh, other predators. And then the real key is the characterization. Anyone who grew up reading Stephen King knows this. He was one of my teachers without consent, because as I was coming up, obviously, as most horror writers did, we were reading Stephen King, very well known for his characters. Cujo is a dog barking outside of a, a car for 500 pages. And that is not scary just because of the premise. It's scary because of who's in that car and the circumstances that led them to being in that car. And that is 100% the most important part of making horror scary is you believe in those characters. Those people have to be real. What makes them real? What makes them real is not just the way they're interacting with each other within the moment. But it's whatever their circumstances are that have led them to this moment where they're confronting this horror. So that's why I've said often on this podcast, you see over and over in horror, you see it in my work, you see it in a lot of horror writers' work. It is that they are suffering, have suffered a trauma of some kind, or they've committed a transgression of some kind. And the biggest and probably most popular trauma right now is grief. I think because we've all experienced it, it's the the one horror that we never really figure out how to deal with completely. I mean, you can bury it and you don't have to look at it all the time, but there's this hole in us when we lose someone that just like a five-year-old child, we cannot fully comprehend it. They were here and now they're not. 
and one day we will not be here, which is where all that grief actually leads to. That's <laughs> certainly uh, my take on it. I think I consider <laughs> grief to be a, a form of fear in that sense. Right. I mean, there definitely is a component. It's not that we don't love and miss those people, but then it's like, oh, snap, death is real. That means I'm going to die. And that is that existential dread that really fuels all horror from beginning to end, because all horror is about trying to survive whatever it is you're up against. So if you mix up, okay, so you bring a character in, I'll use the example of Jordan Peele, get out. Yeah, it's an interesting premise, but imagine that movie if Chris wasn't still in grief over the loss of his mother. That grief over the loss of the mother carries a lot of weight in Get Out because it's informing the way he reacted to hitting the deer and being unable to walk away from the deer that was suffering on the road because it now we realize after we see the whole movie that it's reminding him of his mother and that hit and run that she suffered. The mother... Well, consider, that- really, let's... let's, let's- Let's touch on that a little bit more because you're you're looking at something, a connection that I ne- actually never made with the movie. But if I follow what you're talking about, what do you make of the fact – and I think that it's not – you know, it's not a spoiler at this point. No. That deer antlers are used at, at the climax of the film for him to defend himself. True. If the deer was a symbol of his grief over the loss of his mother, then what do you make of that symbol being used to defend himself? Well, and that – Rup, I'm actually glad you asked me that question because I have an answer based on what I was about to say. You remember mm. how the witchy mom was able to use his grief? Of, like she was poking at it and poking at it. Take yourself back. Put yourself there. What do you hear? Like literally trying to take him back to the day he lost his mother. She used his grief as a weapon against his own psyche to sure. help put him in the sunken place. That's how She weaponized his grief. And by the end of the movie... Chris has weaponized his own experience to work past that paralysis of grief to take that memory and make it part of his strength. If I'm going to take the deer and the antlers to the wow. conclusion, I mean, you can, you could interpret it that way. No, I, I can see that. And it doesn't matter whether that was part of Jordan's intent. No. It doesn't even matter whether you're right or not, because in a sense, there is no right or wrong here. No. What you're talking about is, does this sequence of images have power? And why would they have power? It's right. not even necessarily the greatest power in the film, but it's one of the ways that that grief, which connects to our fear of mortality, which is universal. Mm-hmm. Most of us have lost parents by the time we're, you know, we're, we're adults. Mm-hmm. Or or grandparents certainly. So that grief and that fear and that realizing, hey, we're next, is all in there. So the political, philosophical aspect of get out is anchored in a personal feeling of loss. Which then you're talking about how him, you know, it was weaponized against him, and now he's weaponizing it to survive. That's pretty sophisticated. I mean, that's a really interesting analysis, and it makes me want to be very certain that before we move from the three, four-page version of this story, we've got that lined up, that we can see how each character is on a journey and what their journey is and how this event impacts them. I, I I can have some general ideas about major plot elements, but they are not lined up elegantly. They're right. not, not yet. But if I can do it right, 
this could be one of the best things I've ever done. What I want is to touch that lion's blood place, that great sky woman place where there is a certain poeticism to what I'm Ray doing. Ray books by Stephen Barnes that all of you should read. <laughs> you know, it, it's 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 that I I need I need to do that in order to give proper respect to the younger me that was trying so hard to find something in my heart that was a value that I could give yeah. to the world. It all goes, it's, it starts with character. I mean, so Get Out, you could make Get Out as a drama, right? Without the horror element. If you had that deep level of characterization, this is a new relationship. He's feeling insecure. He's a bit unmoored. He's like, he's orphaned, basically. He's in love with this woman. And, well, there's, and, a, there's a, a stage play version of it with no sure. fantasy or science fiction elements or horror elements at all that is psychodrama where these people who think that they are liberals or present themselves there that they're deep it's a version of guess who's coming to dinner and he just has a super uncomfortable Ooh. weekend a super uncomfortable weekend end of story that's a drama right what makes Wait, it what horror. if you said it was that get out was guess who's coming to dinner as a horror film Yes. I mean, I'm sure he had seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Of course. So, and 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 in terms of Jordan Peele, uh, as he told us when he Skyped into our, our Sunken Place class, .com, by the way, uh, if you want to see that interview, he talked about how his first drafts of Get Out were not about race. <laughs> you know, it was about the uncomfortable feeling of being that odd person out, like you're around a group of friends they've all known each other forever but you're a plus one and you don't know anybody and that sucks and that's where he started so when i say you take what scares you in real life maybe you have a little social anxiety and this is your worst nightmare is you're the odd person out turn it up to 11 what if it's not just you're the odd person out but everybody's coveting your body they're gonna bid on you you know you're that that's what I mean by turn it up to eleven. So take what scares you, turn it up to eleven. You make it supernatural. I prefer supernatural. I'm not really into human horror as much, but you know, do what y'all gonna do. If you want to have like a psycho break into the house, that's a version of horror. Obviously, I prefer it to be a demon or a zombie or a ghost. You know, because that's not as likely to actually happen, so it doesn't trigger me in the same way. And and make it a journey. Make it a journey that expends your character, okay? So it is a journey of self-revelation. It is a journey of picking up skills they did not even know they had. And ultimately, in a lot of horror, it's like Liam Neeson's Eyes in the Gray, which I do watch that movie over and over. It's it's considered a downer ending because, you know, you're assuming that Liam Neeson is going to get eaten by these wolves, this alpha wolf he's facing off. But to me, all horror is not about whether the wolf wins. It's about whether you can f- dig into yourself and find every resource you have to stand up to this thing and sometimes protect others too. Protecting others, standing up to this thing, whatever it is, that is the point of life. We do not survive in the end. <laughs> okay. Right. So it's not about whether you, the character survives in the end. The, the the movie is about who the character becomes in the course of standing up to the threat and horror. And it is about the scariest thing you've ever even encountered. You didn't even know it existed. The less you know about it, the better, as far as I'm concerned, going in and watching characters learn, watching characters work together to try to overcome the threat, which is why gaslighting is my least favorite part of horror because 
Yes, it's realistic, obviously. If I went to Steve and I said, you're going to think I'm crazy, but when I opened the closet, I thought I saw a shadow thing that flew out of the window. He might think I'm nuts, but he's not going to tell me that in real life. I think Steve would go into that closet with me and try to figure out what it was. I think Steve would have done the same thing if our son was five or six years old. So when I see parents gaslighting children, spouses gaslighting each other in horror, that to me is a lazy writing beat because you are not ready for the part of the story where everybody comes together to come up with a plan. And there is a way to do it without gaslighting, okay? Is it going to kill your character to shine a damn flashlight in the closet for five seconds and give some honor and respect to the person who said they saw something? No, it won't. (laughs) So don't be, really, don't make gaslighting your go-to, even if it seems that it would be plausible because it's so overdone and it doesn't help move the story forward. It separates characters from each other. And to me, it's like an artificial conceit to create a sense of more danger. And I think we're clever enough that we can continue to create danger, even if people are aligned with each other, even if people are willing to believe, but they haven't seen it themselves. Oh my God, that character who's willing to step up and be helpful, even though they didn't even see the thing. I love that character. I love, I have like miles in the good house is, does not believe that there is a demon in my protagonist's life. Angela thinks there's a demon that had something to do with her son's death. Miles doesn't buy it, but man, does he stand by her. He stands by her until then it's obvious that, oh shoot, something is here. But at that point he had already put in the work. He had already given her another place to stay so she wouldn't have to stay in the house, right? He had already listened to her, even if he didn't believe her. So anyway, that's me going off on a tangent. But yeah, she wants psychological realism. You, I mean, there's nothing that will break you out of a horror story more than when characters behave in ways that we do not recognize, right? Like, okay, there's like a huge sound in the basement. I've said, hello, which, why, first of all, but okay, hello. (laughs) If you're going to go investigate that sound, and you have not picked up some kind of household item that serves as a weapon, you are an idiot. And at that point, I am starting to sort of distance myself from you emotionally. Make your characters smart. Horror that has to rely on characters being stupid, non-communicative, like this horrible thing happened, but they're not going to tell anybody. Oh, they'd never believe me, so I'm never going to tell. I'm not going to tell them. Which is why, is it connected to the fact that you... Your favorite moment in a horror film is when people sit down and discuss what they're what's happening. The meeting. I almost want to watch Alien again right now. <laughs> because the meeting. I hate meetings in real life, but horror meetings are my favorite moment because that's the moment where one or more of the characters have convinced the others that something is actually happening. They start to compare their stories, they're putting the pieces together. And they start to formulate the plan. You mean now, they're not just talking about how they feel? They're actually... <laughs> <laughs> oh, very funny. Oh, oh, oh you snap. got jokes. Actually, that was funny. I'll give it to you. You deserve the laugh. I no, but it says something. Boost. It says something. That one of the differences in horror is that to a certain degree, horror is about what we can't understand, what we can't fix. 
but there has to be enough discussion of it for us to continue to believe that we that these people are are intelligent enough for us to empathize with them. So a movie right. like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you have yeah. characters of normal intelligence who are about to enter a situation that they have no slightest understanding of. No Nothing. slightest understanding. Alien is about normal people of normal intelligence dealing with something that is beyond their understanding, which is why Prometheus did not work because mm. in Prometheus they were scientists and mm. they should have known better. Whereas mm -hmm. in Alien, they're just teamsters. They're just truck drivers. They had there was no way they were supposed to know what to do or not do or why this. They're was on their way home. They, they don't even home. want to be so, bothered with this. This so is not even in their job description. If you were to talk about the male and femaleness of this, which is clearly just a yin and yang, it's not talking about men and women. You're talking about the experience of the thing is in the feelings, but you have to think about the thing in order to, for us to believe in and trust these people. So the situation has to be worse than they can solve within the time frame that they've got to solve it. And, but they have to think, so that's going to be one of the differences between an action film and a horror film. Remember okay, preach, baby. Preach, because you know action. That, that if, if something is killing you in the dark, it's horror. Mm. If you turn the lights on and it's a tiger, you're just as dead, but that's just an action movie. Right. Okay. You're, you know, so it's, it's horror takes place in the realm beyond where your mind works. Mm -hmm. And action takes place where you can see the game board and you're just trying to figure out, can I play chess and get there? Can I use my, can I leverage my intelligence and my courage and my strength, you know, and my tool using in my ability to create uh, partnerships with other people to solve this problem? The, the, the darkness, the thing that is beyond our kin, beyond our understanding, H.P. Lovecraft, this is not supernatural. It's supernormal horror. These are things from another dimension. We cannot understand them. We cannot understand their motivations. They, they don't care about us. We're just meat, if, even, if that much. And so it's horrible because we are forced to understand how little we mean. Right. You know, it's these things don't even care enough about us to to enjoy killing us. Right. That's the scariest thing. Oh my god. They don't even have you can't bargain with it. Oh my god. Especially no. demons. They like. Mm. But you know, and, and talking about action too, I think of someone like a, a Liam Neeson action film. Right. You can have <clears throat> Liam Neeson action hero walking through a house where he hears a noise in the basement. He's not going to say hello, but pretend he was like hello. <laughs> Why? He's not going to say that. He's going to be stealthy. But the reason that also doesn't come off as horror is because he's alert and he's ready and scared. Not scared in the sense that we feel fear because he has a particular set of skills That's and right. he's going to kick the ass of whatever it is. That's like, so I know this. As now, wouldn't viewer. it be interesting to take a Liam Neeson type hyper competent character and drop him into a horror movie? Where his it, ordinary skills deal can deal with the people, but they can't deal with what the people created, let's say. Or mm, so he, he's a spy, he's an assassin, you know, he's a this, is that, and he's hyper competent. And you take him into a situation where we explore those things, but the ultimate confrontation and the end and the middle of the second act 
is him realizing that he's dealing with something that is totally beyond anything he has ever experienced. You know, he's in a totally different context. You know what horror subgenre does that really well? Wartime horror. Hmm. Because when you think about it, any war movie should be horror. But for all the reasons we've discussed, it's not. It's action. But introduce the unknown. It's not the Nazis that are the problem, but there's something living in this tunnel. Or and a predator, you're trapped. You know, where you have you know Arnold yes. Schwarzenegger and his crew of five you know super almost superhumanly lethal soldiers, and then you take them apart with something that is beyond anything that they have experienced. Right. You know, and the it's horror and action horror, and ultimately becomes an action movie because he finally has a chance to understand what he's dealing with enough to to use leverage his intelligence against it. Yes. Uh, you know, in the movie Prey, which is basically, you know, a situation where indigenous peoples are dealing with a predator and the predator makes a huge mistake. I mean, it's horror, a lot of it's horror, but the predator makes a mistake in underestimating the the woman. And mm. by underestimating her, he gives her a chance to figure out how to kill it. Right. And so it it's it it it, it works on, on multiple levels. But what that is a result of somebody having thought things through very carefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thought it's way through very carefully. Or just, you know, I don't believe in you know, the sort of intuitive genius who just comes up with it and it works the first time. No, that's not people, even interesting. That's not but even that's interesting. not that's not what no, I'm talking about in the creation of the thing. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Talk yeah. to somebody like Jordan Peele, he'll talk about how he worked on this and rewrote for years. Right. For years. And to to create something that was elegant. Yeah, so, and 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 that's sorry. Go ahead, please. No, I was going to say that that's not to say that you can't create a horror protagonist who is well-trained and lethal in their own right. I watch a lot of survival reality shows, and I don't know of a survivalist who likes to be in the woods at night without a big fire and shelter. Well, it's not even, that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that these superior pieces of horror, which affect us on multiple levels, which have protagonists that we can identify with, but place them in situations where their ordinary skills are not are insufficient. To line up all of these different aspects so that it plays like a baby, it feels to me that that is the result of thought and rewriting. Yeah, much more than somebody just having a solid idea. Maybe once in a lifetime, you know, you know, once in a generation, you get somebody who can do that frequently, or once in a career, you'll just you know come up with an idea and bang, it just plays like a baby but most of it is just the work yeah it is it is the work and and i want to say really briefly before our time gets short that you want to think about the antagonist too zombies are perhaps some of the most mindless antagonists in horror there are they just kind of want to break in and and kill you but make sure that there's logic even to your zombies you know what's What's different about the way you write zombies and the way you've seen them a million times before? When when Steve and I wrote our novels, Devil's Wake and Domino Falls, we had some very specific ideas about what had caused the zombie outbreak. We had very specific ideas about the life cycle of these zombies. We didn't even call them zombies. We called them freaks. So I would say put your own unique spin on it. If it's a demon, same thing. If it's a ghost, obviously, and ghost stories unearthing the past and the reason for the haunting is 
super, super important. You need to know that. <laughs> you can't just have well-drawn characters in a chaotic haunted house situation with no rhyme or reason for the most part and, and expect it to be an effective story. There's an interaction between your characters and the antagonist that just brings it into even greater relief, like the the, the tension. I just we're working on another creature script called Bear Creek Lodge. That's that that I'm taking lead on that one. And Steve and I, you know, Steve really put put the pressure on in terms of this this creature can't just be a symbol, you know, which it is, but also it has to be a creature. That means it has its own wants and desires and life cycle, and you need to know everything there is to know about that creature. You're God in the universe of your story. Yeah, you that's, so make it, if you're going to do it, do it in depth. Do the world building from the creature's point of view. And in that particular story, I don't want to get too spoilery, but the creature's actions don't really demonstrate what the creature is actually feeling and thinking. You know, they're just, it's just in some ways a misunderstanding, although it's a, a lethal misunderstanding, but it, it it's not all what it appears to be. There's more to it. And I think that that is a good rule for antagonists too. A lot of readers sometimes like the antagonists if they're more human-like, like vampires, like the protagonists more than anybody else. I mean, rather they like the antagonists more than anybody else in the story. So you really want to give a lot of thought to creating an antagonist that pops, that isn't just repeating everything you've seen before. And we have a lot of tidbits about story creation, whether it's horror, non-horror, that we have in a workshop coming up on September 23rd called 10 Writer Secrets for Breaking into Hollywood. It is really designed for anyone who's interested in breaking into Hollywood, but I'm specifically thinking of who I was a few years ago as a novelist, a prose writer. I didn't know anything about writing scripts. I didn't know anything about making connections. And I've learned a lot in the past 25 years. I really want to pass it on to you all so you don't have to spend 25 years learning it. Steve was working in the industry before I even thought about it. I mean, he's been in the industry for a long time. So we just want to create a a toolbox, a three-hour workshop. We're capping attendance at 100 people. And it's at www.hollywoodloophole.com, www.hollywoodloophole.com. Why is it a loophole? Because we're teaching you hacks (laughs) that will hopefully save you some time and energy (laughs) as you're trying to figure this stuff out. And even though the course is $197, I mean, we don't really try to say this uh, with too much of our chest, but if you can't afford that, you'll see when you go to hollywoodloophole.com that there's a way you can email us and, and ask for a lower price and offer a lower price because we really just want to spread this information, including yeah, we want, I want I want a dynamic workshop. I want yes. people asking good questions. I want people who are enthusiastic. I want I want writers. I want writers who are really really care about their craft and really are in love with the idea of storytelling. Give me that. And I'd rather have that than somebody who paid 10, you know, paid thousands of dollars, but was sitting there bored. Right. Give me, give me a live room, please. That makes it, it's such a joy to teach a live room and just have a conversation. You know, that, that's, if there's anything I love more than that, I don't know what it is. Well, we, we've had some great courses in the past. I know this will be no exception. Right. And some of you are thinking, well, isn't Hollywood in a strike? Well, yeah, the WGA is on strike. But I'll tell you this, I'm not a prognosticator and I'm not on the negotiating committee, but I am reading <laughs> and I'm seeing a lot of information in social media. I feel like this strike 
could end in the next certainly few weeks. I mean, yeah, some people I think, think it's got it might to end go. before Christmas. Yeah, I mean, some it, people it'd be think disastrous for Hollywood if it didn't if 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 it went through the Christmas season. So it takes time to gain these skills. It takes time to practice these skills, but there's no better time than the present. Again, it's September 23rd. It's going to be from 5 to 8 on the East Coast and from 2 to 5 on the West Coast. Go to www.hollywoodloophole.com. We would love to see you there. We're going to talk about writer's rooms. We're going to talk about how do you format a screenplay? Let's start with that. We'll recommend some programs for screenwriters that are not Final Draft and don't cost it quite as much. No offense to Final Draft, which is the industry standard, but you can use other programs and then convert it to Final Draft files. All the hacks, people, is what we're talking about at www.hollywoodloophole.com. And I don't know, Steve, do you have anything else? No, I can't think of anything at the moment. I mean, I, I, the one thing I would say is that if, if any horror magazine or whatever is smart enough to get you to do a monthly column, what you've talked about, you, know, you should you should listen to what you've been talking about in this episode because you had you had subjects and material for five columns. I know I did so much. Yeah, you really you really you know put your foot up in that. I really feel like oh thank you, honey, that means a lot to me, and I really feel like I could have said so much more. That's right. Um, maybe we will do one strictly on horror in the future, but right now it's for everybody. Hollywoodloophole.com. Everyone, go out and make yourself the hero and heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.